Jim Bennett. Welcome back to Mormon Discussion. How are you this morning? I am doing well. Thrilled to be here. Good, good. And here we are. We're part six. We're wrapping up. This should be essentially the last episode, maybe even the last episode, depending on kind of how we get through this. But uh, I woke up this morning. It is uh, the 21st of February, and there's about three or four inches of snow here on the ground in southern Utah, which is kind of abnormal, as you know. Oh, uh, yeah. So kind of uh, kind of a cool, cold winter uh, winter day today. Um, last time, so again, we've run through this. Uh, been talking to Jim Bennett. He's done what I think is a great response to the CES letter. Uh, while I disagree, I thought it would be helpful to sit down to take the biggest issues that people are losing faith over that the CES letter discusses and to kind of hit those on a high level uh, and then where needed kind of dig into uh, dig in uh, uh, deeper into some of these issues. And so we've covered a lot of ground thus far, uh, Book of Abraham, Book of Mormon, First Vision, Joseph's Treasure Digging, on and on and on. And here we are in episode six. And the goal today is to talk about the prophetic mantle of LDS leaders, as well as to talk about spiritual witnesses as a uh, a spiritual witness as a way to know the truth of something. And Jim, I want to start off, um, and and I, I want to preface this question only because I, I should have sent this to you yesterday and given you time to think about it. So I'm going to ask it, and if if you don't have a great answer off the start, because this is a question I probably would need a few minutes to think about, then we'll revisit it when we get to the end as well, because I think it's an important question. And it's it's that you said that you think these men, talking about the top 15 of the church, you think these men get way more right than they get wrong. And I'm curious if you could name some of the things that they get right, things they got right before the world was encouraging it to go that direction and before the critics in the church on some at least uh, tangible level were reaching up and, and publicly asking for the church to do something different. Can, can you name maybe some things that you think the church, you know, like nailed it, they got it, uh, to show the listeners that, yeah, I mean, sometimes these guys are ahead of the game and that would be evidence of a, of a, of a spirit of, of being a prophet, a seer, and a revelator. I, uh, I actually have some firsthand experience with this because I've been involved with the church uh, I interviewed at one point for the church's position as their government relations director. And uh, I've, I've interacted with that part of their organization on a number of occasions. And it was really interesting to me in 2010 when I was running my father's failed re-election campaign. You know, I always swore to myself that if he lost, I'd feel guilty for the rest of my life, and I haven't felt one day of guilt. I don't think there's anything else we could have done to to get him reelected because there was sort of a perfect storm of tea partiers who were angry at him. And I remember the conversation with the government relations director to, uh, about immigration. And the church, I think, has been out in the forefront of immigration reform. Because it, 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 it sounds like you're framing this in terms of political issues. But in terms of immigration reform, uh, it, it's remarkable to me uh, as a former Republican. I'm no longer a Republican. I'm still a member of the church, but I'm not a member of the Republican Party. It, it, it was remarkable. I thought those two were inseparable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it was remarkable to me uh, when, I, when I was essentially a professional Republican. I worked on a number of campaigns and was a party hack for a great many years. 
And it was always distasteful to me how members of the church in politics would wrap themselves in the church and that they would sort of try to use the church to gain political advantage. And I'm, I'm more Mormon than thou would carry the day more often than not. And it was remarkable to me that that that, that was essentially the, the status quo of the Utah Republican Party until the church says things that the Republican Party doesn't agree with. And I remember a conversation with the government relations director where he said, we know we have the biggest stick in the state. That is, we know that if we, if we say something, that, that lawmakers will do something. He says, so we try not to use that stick unless we have to. And he says, but the flip side to that is that when we do take a political stand, uh, it's something that has gone up, down, and sideways throughout the entire organization of the church. And so it was remarkable when the when the church came out in favor of the Utah Compact, which favors an immigration policy far to the left of where the Republican Party is, that Republicans went all over themselves to distance themselves from, oh, well, they, you, you don't have to agree with the church on these sorts of things. And I mean, right after the church issued its statement, it, the Republicans held their state convention and passed a resolution condemning the church's position. So I, I'm also a couple of other things. I, I'm in a award with uh, Patrick Kieran, who's a member of the 70, who gave, gave a wonderful talk that was, I think, very much on the cutting edge of this issue, where he talked about the importance of helping refugees. And I think the church has done wonderful things with regard to uh, setting up uh, opportunities for people to directly help refugees. Uh, who are who are local, but also internationally. Uh, I think the church has done a, a great deal of, of work on that that far surpasses uh, much of what the world has been doing, and certainly what this political administration has been doing. And the fact that Utah is the only state in the union with a Republican governor that welcomes refugees into their state, I think, is a tribute to the church's influence. Um, I also spent many years as a writer for the Deseret News as one of their editorial writers, which was an interesting responsibility because they're very concerned over at the Deseret News that anything they say editorially will be taken as the position of the church since the church owns that newspaper. Uh, I never had any interaction with any church leadership. Uh, you know, there, there was always kind of this some people would say, oh, yeah, well, the apostles or the brethren, they, they really interfere in the editorials. And they really didn't, although I think they probably would have if the editorial director uh, ha had a reputation for going out of bounds. And he, and he certainly didn't have that reputation. So that really wasn't a problem. But the number of issues, issues like care for the poor, which was one of the major focuses of the Deseret News, I think the church leads out on that in wonderful ways. I think the church, I think the church does a great deal of good for which it does not get a lot of credit. And, and, you know, in our last conversation, we talked about the system being broken. And I don't think the system is broken. I think if you're looking at the church as being an organization that's supposed to be on the cutting edge of, of political evolution, 
uh, I think you're sort of misrepresenting what the church is supposed to be. I think that on the, on the immigration issue, uh, President Nelson, for instance, has also come out in favor of, of gun control to some degree. He said we need to keep guns out of the hands of people that shouldn't have them. And I think that's not a position you would hear from a Republican politician. So I, I think just pegging the church as sort of this arch-conservative political organization, I think is misrepresenting what the church is. And I think that what the church does and the church's purpose, I think the church fulfills it very well and, and in ways that I think no other organization can match. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't disagree on the immigration issue. I, I... I don't remember exactly the year, but I think I was serving as a bishop. If not, I was a counselor in a bishopric. When the church came out with its policies in terms of handling illegal immigrants within the church, in terms of ordinances and things, and and their stance caught me off guard, only because I expected them to stand by the article of faith, right? Like, we believe in following the laws of the land, and, and hence they would want to distance themselves from somebody who had gotten into the country illegally, even... Though, obviously, we know those issues are complex. There's reasons those people are leaving their country, and they're leaving because they're in danger uh, of one form or another of receiving some sort of trauma or lack of care where they were at. And so, But I expected the church to fall a certain way, and they came down in this other direction. And I could see the members of my ward struggle with that. And to be honest, to some extent, I struggle with it. I used to be an avid listener of Glenn Beck and Rush Limbaugh and all that stuff. And uh, and to see the church come out with something that kind of flew in the face of what every member would have expected, uh, kind of g- gave me a moment to pause and say, ooh, something's happening here, something different. So I agree with you on that one. Um, I don't think these are overly political. You and I were talking yesterday, and I, I think the ones you pointed out are, but I don't think the issue generally is overly political. I think that as you and I talked uh, yesterday or day before, uh, about this, and I think it was two days ago, but we talked about the idea that uh, on the homosexual issue, they're behind. On the race and the priesthood, they were behind. They they got it wrong, and then they had to self-correct. And on the homosexual issue, you and I think they got it wrong, and they're going to have to self-correct. Um, I, I think, and I, I assume, and again, I, I do this a lot throughout these conversations, but I also give you time to, to correct me. I assume that you also think that on some level, there's some danger with having a leader by themselves behind closed doors with kids. And I, I, I know there's some positives to those interactions. We just had a, another guy arrested two days ago who was a former, I think, sheriff oh, or sheriff yeah. deputy Lehigh? here in southern Utah. Well, the, well the, have you heard the story of the, the bishop in Lehigh that was involved in, in sex trafficking? Yeah, and, and if I'm not mistaken, he was a police officer here in southern Utah oh, for a few years. That's disgusting. Yeah. And and so, you know, the church has made space for if the parent or the kid requests an adult, but you and I both know the most vulnerable kids are the ones who don't ask and don't know to ask and don't know they can ask. Um, and and I, I guess I'll get your two cents there, but my personal opinion is that for the betterment of these kids, to protect even just one, that we've got to do something to to make sure that there's two adults in a room with a kid. Nowhere else in the world do we take a lay minister an untrained lay minister and stick them in a room with a child without any kind of background check or, uh, I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of unhealthy mechanisms pointing at this being a problem. No, I would agree with that. In fact, when the church changed its position to allow parents to be in the room, 
we told our children, we told our bishop, we said, this is the standard, is one of us is going to be here for every interview. And to his credit, our bishop didn't bat an eye and said, wonderful. And, and we've had some great interactions with the bishop in those interviews, but we've been present. And I, I think that's a great change. Yeah. Do you think, let's, let's go a step further. Um, I recognize I want to make space for a kid to be able to go to his ecclesiastical leader and to report some sort of abuse at home or otherwise and to feel like there's a level of confidentiality with that. So if if the child seeks out the leader for a confidential conversation, um, I want to make space. I want to have have safety measures in place, but I want to make space that a kid can report that his dad's physically abusing him or his mom's physically abusing him. But on the other hand... Short of that, do you think that should be the standard for everybody, that we should have two adults in the room at all times whenever on the church's end we're reaching out and saying, come into this room, let's have a conversation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as a general rule, I, I, I think you, you've talked about exceptions to that. I think when, when uh, I, I think there is value in having a bishop as somebody who can be a confidant when there is abuse at home. So... So just saying that under no circumstances can somebody approach a bishop unless their parent is present, I think makes it difficult for those kinds of, of abuses to be reported. But I think as a general rule, yeah, having two people in the room is a great idea. Yeah, and, and, and when it comes to that kind of issue, when I look at issues, so we're talking about homosexuality, we're talking about race and the priesthood. The church has self-admitted by its recent temple changes and by allowing... Uh, sisters to have leadership roles out on missions, that it was behind the times on on gender or not gender, but uh, sexual sex. Wait, I hadn't heard that. So, so like women can be zone leaders and district leaders now. No, 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 no. But there was a leadership council, and the sisters can be part of that. They've increased a little more visibility to the mission president's wife. Uh, they've allowed uh, women in the church to. Uh, pray in general conference, which seems like that was a hundred years late, yeah, uh, yeah. to allow the Relief Society presidency, Young Women's presidency, primary presidency of the general church to sit up on the stand. Uh, it, it just seems like, and again, I'm not talking about uh, sister missionaries being zone leaders, but that there was an increased role for the sisters on missions that gave them some visibility in leadership capacities, though still way short of where the men could serve. Um, and I'm trying to just think of the word. Do I want to call that sex equality? Uh, but it, it seems on some level that on social issues, and you and I kind of agreed with this last time, on social issues, the church seems to be behind most of the time. And you pointed out a, a good exception of the rule, which is immigration, uh, which is certainly a social issue. Um, but what, what I want to get into is this idea of prophet, seer, and revelator. And you're saying like, look, if you're expecting these guys to be ahead of the times more than more than half the time, then uh, you know maybe that's not going to happen. That may not be their role. And you pointed out last time that uh, that a seer, for instance, is somebody who can translate records. And there certainly is scripture to support that. As you pointed out, you can go into Messiah and you can see that that's someone who, who can do that. My pushback question would be, I agree with you that Joseph does that, but we don't really have anybody after him doing that, correct? Like, even if that is the way we... If we define seer in that limited way, they're not. Nobody after Joseph Smith is actually fulfilling that capacity either, though. Correct? Uh, correct. I mean, we we haven't gotten uh, translations of ancient documents from any other prophet. Uh, the fact that 
the, the example that I tried to cite yesterday is the one where Jeff Holland said, if we get the sealed portion, these are the men we're going to get it from. Uh, but so far, the Lord has not seen fit to reveal any other ancient records. There hasn't been a need for a seer to perform that role. Uh, but sustaining these men as prophet seers and revelators recognizes that this is the channel through which that would come if it is going to come. Do Let me ask you this. Do you... I know we are taught that. I know we're taught that at some point the angel Moroni is going to come back. He's going to give President Nelson or some other prophet you know, after him the gold plates again, and that prophet's going to break the seal and, and read the seal portion. Do you believe there's, that's actually going to happen? I don't know that we're taught that. I, I, I was never necessarily taught that. My understanding was that we'll get, we're going to probably get the sealed portion and all the records of the lost tribes and all of that kind of thing after the Savior comes. I don't have any expectation of that happening before the second coming. So, a thousand, so well, even, okay, so you think that's something that would happen in the second coming? Or you're saying, like, look, a thousand years from now, maybe Jesus isn't back yet, and if, if the sealed portion isn't translated, it wouldn't surprise me. Well, no, I, I, I think the second coming is going to come before a thousand years from now. I have no idea when, obviously, but, but I think it's sooner than that. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get the sealed portion prior to the millennium, no. Um, I want to read a little bit from Mosiah, because I think seer has a greater role than that. And I want to get into each of these words, prophet, seer, and revelator. But we talked about seer last time, so let's start there. Mosiah chapter 8, starting at verse 15. And the king said that a seer is greater than a prophet. Now, I'd love to hear how a seer is greater. Obviously, there's this idea of translating records, but we've already acknowledged that outside of Joseph, nobody from Brigham Young to President Nelson's done that. And then Ammon said that a seer is a revelator and a prophet also. And a gift which is greater can no man have except that he should possess the power of God, which no man can, yet a man may have great power given him from God. But a seer can know of things which are past and also of things which are to come. And by them shall all things be revealed, or rather shall secret things be made manifest, and hidden things shall come to light, and things which are not known shall be made known by them, and also things which, I'm sorry, things shall be made known by them, which otherwise could not be known. Thus has God approved a means that man, through faith, might work mighty miracles, therefore he becometh a great benefit to his fellow beings. That seems to indicate that there is going to be a lot of mystery revealed. Um, at least some mystery revealed, and, and to an extent that we could look back and go, these men are operating differently than if I just took 15 other spiritual leaders from a particular religion and said, what am I learning from those guys, and what are they giving me, that there's something in addition. And I'm just curious, and again, this is this is going to be a little more contentious, I think, in this last episode, because <laughs> because only because I... I look at these men, and what I see are 15 business managers running a corporation, and I and a lot of other people are really struggling to say like, oh, yeah, that looks prophetic. That looks revelatory. That looks like somebody who's seeing into the past and the future. And um, I'm just curious if, if what mysteries you sense being revealed, you know, these things that it says uh, made known by them, which otherwise could not be known, um, what are those things that these guys are providing? 
Uh, I don't know that we need to be contentious because I, I think the issue is that we have different assumptions as to as to what having that role means. Because I, I see that to some degree. Uh, I'm trying to think of an analogy that wouldn't be disrespectful. Uh, okay, uh, I'm I'm I suppose I'm a member of the National Guard, and we know that. The National Guard is their responsibility is to protect the nation and to fight for the nation, and yet the vast majority of the members of the National Guard are probably never going to see combat. Uh, well, we live in a time where we've had a war that's been going on for, you know, the longest war in American history in Afghanistan, particularly. But the thing is, people can have roles and assignments where they will be called upon to do something when that something is necessary. But for most of the time, that something is not going to be necessary. I do not think it is necessary for us to have additional scripture like the Book of Mormon when I don't think we fully appreciated the Book of Mormon for what we have. So I would look at this, and I wouldn't push back and say, no, no, these guys are are doing all kinds of miraculous seeings that happen in general conference. And we get a prophecy about what's going to happen next year, every April, uh, because that isn't what's happening. That very, that's very clearly not, not what's happening. And, and I think, I think what we're being told is that these are the watchmen on the tower and the watchmen on the tower usually call back and say, it's seven o'clock and all's well. But as soon as somebody starts attacking, it's the watchmen who are going to see them first and who are going to be able to tell us about them. So I think these are the men that have been placed in that position. But the fact that they are not um, not having these kinds of miraculous uh, translation opportunities or uh, prophetic announcements about the future uh, in the way that I think you are expecting them to have, and I think many members of the church may be expecting them to have, I don't think, I, I think they're the, I would say the majority of members of the church recognize that that's the exception rather than the rule, and they're not expecting that when they show up at conference. But uh, I, I, I would just say that, that the status quo isn't nearly as spectacular is the kinds of things that seers are called upon to do in extraordinary moments. And every time a seer is called upon to do that, I think it's an extraordinary moment. Okay, so yeah, yes, in terms of, I understand the position that you're pushing, which is this idea that if the time comes, then, then they're ready to act in this role. And then also kind of the lead on like, hey, this isn't the standard quo, but when it's necessary, then it's there. But but what I'm saying is something different, which is I don't see it there at all. It's not like it's not there 90% of the time and then 10% of the time it's there and I'm just expecting it to be there 100% of the time. Instead, I've gone 20 years in the church and now I've gone about five of that being more on the critical side and I've spent a year of it outside the church. And so looking at my time since uh, 1997 when I was baptized, so now we're 21 years in, um, my 21 years of watching the church as an observer, I've seen nothing 
that gives any kind of weight to saying like, wait a minute, it's not just if they're needed. It's not just behind closed doors what the ifs and buts may be. It's that I actually see some kind of evidence that on even, let's say, five occasions that these men did something that looked like to me like, wow, that was certainly not at all what 15 other men from any other religious organization could, would have come up with or done. There was no new mystery revealed. I haven't seen that. And, I, and so I'm pushing back and saying like, and I, and I appreciate, by the way, that you're at least acknowledging like, look, for the members of the church who are expecting magic and expecting these guys to reveal new things on a regular basis, it's not going to happen. And our expectations are, those are false assumptions that we're making. That said, I, I want to deal with the fact that I essentially see nothing over 20 years. And I've gone through years and years of Gordon B. Hinckley. I've gone through years and years of Thomas S. Monson. I've gone through years and years of uh, President Nelson, and a little less so with him at this point. But I also am very fond of history, and so I, I'm aware of Ezra Taft Benson and Harold B. Lee, and you know, and even you and I talked about Spencer W. Kimball and the revelation on race, like, like that's even magnified and made bigger than what it actually was when you look at the multiple accounts that come out of these guys' hands about what happened that day and how much Spencer W. Kimball had been wrestling with that and asking and asking, and as you point out, finally maybe asking the question without any bigotry left and, and getting some permission. But again, it looks like something way late after the world is reacting and the church um, with its liberal members and those who are on the outside who used to be raising a voice and saying, man, we should have done that a long time ago after the civil rights movement. Like, can, can you provide me, any, and I, I really don't expect you to, um, but I think it's a point for the listeners to understand, like we have prophet seers and revelators who are supposed to be able to, if the need arises, be able to do something. And my 20 years, and for older members, their longer experience says that, yeah, they've just never done it yet. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of assumptions to unpack there. I just think we're looking at this with different expectations and different assumptions. It reminds me a little bit of a conversation, a phone conversation I had with, with Mike Norton. Do you know Mike Norton? Or have you had any conversations? Yeah, new, yeah, new name Noah. New name Noah. Um, I, I, I went on one of his sites and I, I made a comment and he said something like, if, if, here's my phone number, call me if you want the truth more than you want the church to be true. And I went, okay, that's, that's a dare if I've ever heard one. And I picked up the phone and I gave him a call and uh, he had about a 45-minute conversation that in, involved me essentially just listening as he sort of recited a sort of a CES letter list of reasons why the church wasn't true. And one that I hadn't really heard before was that he felt he felt entirely betrayed by President Hinckley when President Hinckley went on um, 60 Minutes and talked to Mike Wallace. And, and Mike Wallace, no, no, I'm sorry, went on Larry King. And Larry King said to him, are you a prophet? And President Hinckley's response was, I am sustained as such. And Mike Norton said, well, what is that? That's not a prophet. I am as sustained as such. That's not what a prophet should say. That's not how a prophet should act. And, and my response was, well, why not? Why, why is that inappropriate? Why is that not how a prophet should act? And 
I look at the leadership of the church. I mean, you say you see them and they're not doing anything that 15 men outside the church couldn't do. And I think that's part of the conversation we had last time. That's exact. I do not see these men as magic. I do not see these men as different from the body of the church. I, I do not see these men as in any way uh, remarkable in terms of being superhuman. I see them as good men. I see them as, as uh, faithful men who are doing the best they can to lead this church. And I see them as the men that have been placed on the watchtower. But the fact that we haven't seen the kind of magic that you seem to be expecting, and I, and I don't think you're alone in that. I think there are other people, certainly Mike Norton expects that, that, that somehow, you know, unless, unless a prophet parts a large body of water or, uh, you know, predicts, you know, can give me tomorrow's stock prices or, you know, what, whatever else it is, whatever the expectation is as to what a prophet is. Uh, I, I think, I, I think the scriptures, particularly even, may give us kind of a, a, a warped understanding of that in that the scriptures highlight the moments where those kinds of things happen and sort of brush over the the hundreds of years, even thousands of years, where those things aren't happening, uh, where we're not, you're not seeing the kinds of of things that you're talking about, uh, and that that even happens in the church. I mean, I, I and, and at the same time, I, I also think that there are miracles and 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 wonderful things that are happening in individuals' lives and that are happening on a local level that uh, don't get publicized. And, and, and I think that the way the church is supposed to work is that each of us is entitled to those kinds of miracles. Each of us is entitled to those kinds of revelations. And that those are happening in ways that, uh, that, 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 that aren't getting any press. Uh, you know, I, I look at my own life, and I, I can point to things in my own life that uh, I'm not really comfortable discussing uh, publicly, but I, I say that that's a miraculous moment in my own life that has reinforced my faith, and I know that God is there, and I know that that every member of the church, not just the 15 men that that manage the church, has access to heaven and has access to those kinds of revelations and those kinds of miracles. So, so I I, I think it's just a question of expectations. It, it, I mean, you're. I hear your question as, why aren't these men meeting my expectations? And my answer is, I think your expectations are, uh, I have different expectations than you do. So a couple times you've mentioned Watchmen on the Tower, and I want to take what we're just talking about just now one step further, which is when Sam Young comes forward and says, we've got to stop one-on-one interviews, that, that feels... Like that meets the prophetic voice that I'm expecting. In other words, somebody coming along and uh, and suggesting a change that makes us healthier and better as human beings and how we treat each other and to support each other in ways that would make Christ pleased. And I see um, Kate Kelly, who was excommunicated, and, and we could debate whether she went too far or not, but to some extent, going to the leadership of the church and saying, would you mind asking God 
if women can have a greater role. Um, what I find in Mormonism is that those who what have the who fill the expected prophetic voice of what my assumptions are, who raise a hand and say, "Hey, church, could we do this better? Could we improve this? Could we stop doing that?" Those those voices that I consider to be prophetic seem to be punished at every turn. In other words, the watchmen on the tower that you're pointing to seem to also be shooting with their arrows those who are coming with the messages from God. Um, and, I, and I'm curious if you, if they're on some level, you can acknowledge like, yeah, there's, there's casualties of good people who are asking the church to make positive changes and who these watchmen in the tower see on some level as an enemy and, and are not receptive. Uh, Dr. Lowry Nelson again um, is telling the church, like, there's a better way, guys. And he's then threatened with church discipline. Um, Senator Udall had a lot of communication over the years back in like the 1960s over the race issue. Was he a senator or was he a representative? Uh, maybe he was a representative, but he met resistance at every turn by LDS leadership and those who were speaking on their behalf as middlemen, constantly being pushed that he was wrong. And I'm, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on those who on the casualties at times that the watchmen in the tower are shooting arrows at the wrong people? Well, I'm always reluctant to sort of dive into specific cases in terms of, you know, did the church treat Sam Young appropriately? Did the church treat Kate Kelly appropriately and other high-profile people? Um, I, and, and part of the reason for that is that is that there's a whole lot more complexity going on there in terms of of how that works. Because I, I, I know that the standard narrative is that people assume that somebody in Salt Lake picks up a phone, calls Kate Kelly's bishop, and say, we need to get rid of this lady. And I don't think that's how it happens. I, I, I really don't. Um, uh, and I think there's local leadership involved. Uh, there are things that are happening. And... and you know, bishops are not in a position to be able to come out and issue a rebuttal when a Kate Kelly or somebody else comes up and says, well, look how terribly I was treated, and this is why I was excommunicated, and this is what's happened. And a bishop quietly says, we don't discuss these things publicly. And the church becomes a punching bag to some degree in those kinds of circumstances. So so, I mean, I, I look at the change that was made uh, that, that now allows me to sit in with, on interviews with my children when the bishop is present and that there are two people present, and I think that is a welcome change. And uh, did Sam Young have something to do with it? I, I think probably yes. I, I, you know, at the same time, did Sam Young go too far when Sam Young's doing a hunger strike at, at Temple Square and all that kind of thing? Well, I, there are people who make that argument, and I think that argument can be made. That's not an argument that I really want to get into the middle of because I don't think I'm equipped to judge Sam Young or anybody else in in those kinds of circumstances. So, so I look at that, and and again, I I, I really think it's important. For the general membership of the church, if, if maybe this makes me heterodox to some degree, but I really think it's important that we that we do not expect 
the leadership of the church to be uh, somehow substantively different than we are. That we, that we should expect that these apostles are better than we are. I, 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 I don't believe that. I don't think they're worse than we are. I don't hold them to a lower standard than I hold my bishop. But I would be willing to sustain my bishop as an apostle. I think he's just as good a man as the 15 men standing at the head of this church. And, and I, I don't... So the fact that, that, that the church on several... On, on these two issues particularly, on the issue of race and on the issue of LGBT rights, I think the church has gotten a great deal wrong. I, I, would, I would have to agree with that. Are they resistant to good advice? In other words, the voices that are saying, guys, slow down, think about this, there's room to make space for change, we've got to do better, our position's untenable, are the top 15 publicly resistant to anybody who suggests there's a better way? Uh, I mean, I think the answer is a qualified yes. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to deny that yes, that the, I, I think the worst way to try to influence the brethren is to create a sort of public relations campaign, a la Kate Kelly, to to get news reporters to show up to you when you're trying to get into priesthood and have a have an usher at the conference center turn you away and then turn around and hold a press conference on Temple Square. I think that is a perfect way to to get the church to dig in its heels. And do everything they can to uh, to try to not look like they're being influenced by Kate Kelly. What, what's the best way? I think the best way is to have quiet conversations with leaders, local leaders, and with with uh, I, I know that people don't have direct access to have conversations with general authorities. I think I've probably had more of an opportunity to do that than most lay members of the church would have. But I think I think conversations with local leaders uh, I think can have an impact. I, I I think you can have, and I think local leaders have conversations. I I, I don't think that the way the church operates uh, does not involve that kind of thing coming up from the bottom up. But I think the church bristles when it feels like it feels like it's being attacked, and I think there is to some degree a cultural. Uh, persecution mentality that that endures from uh, from our early days, where we feel like anybody that uh, is coming after us is is trying to to destroy us when they aren't necessarily trying to do that. If we take Sam Young, for instance, Sam Young was a casualty. Whether he deserves some of it or not, he's excommunicated, and yet what his platform was, in part, was adopted by the church. Had he done that behind the scenes quietly? I think I think you would agree. If the change happened, it wouldn't have been for another decade or two, or, or it would have taken some other big public thing to happen. It would have taken somebody else to be public about it. It would have taken lawsuits. It would have taken something where the church is overwhelmed by the sexual abuse of its kids to say like we need to do something differently. And my point being that it looks. No, I don't. I, I want to push back on that a little bit because because uh, the change, for instance, I used to be a primary teacher. And the change took place that it was no longer appropriate for a man to be a primary teacher solo, to be to be uh, one-on-one with young children. And I ended up having to be a primary teacher alongside 
by my wife. And uh, that change took place before Sam Young. I don't think it is, I don't think it is fair to point to somebody high profile and say that is the only reason why the church is doing anything. I think there is a great deal more going on behind the scenes. And I'm reminded of a conversation I had with my sister uh, about her husband, who was uh, had a PR assignment from the church and, and had been given the question before Kate Kelly began all of this, uh, what can we do to uh, include women in more active roles in the church? And some of the recommendations were, okay, we can have them pray in conference. We can do all of these kinds of things. And a lot of these things were in motion. And my sister came back and said they were stopped and slowed down because the church didn't want to look like it was capitulating to Kate Kelly. So I, I don't think the dynamic is as clear as uh, a handful of brave individuals are willing to sacrifice their membership in the church, and that's the only way the church changes. I don't think that the, the, the narrative bears that out. I don't think that's a fair assessment of what's but happening. But that is one way that works. I don't know that it works. I, I mean, with the Kate Kelly example, I think it sometimes sets things back. I think the church doesn't like to look like it, it, is, it is giving in to its critics. And so things or reforms that were in place or were being planned that are being postponed in order to be able to give them some distance from what the critics are doing, I think would speak to the fact that, that the critics are a hindrance in some areas as well as a help. And... I would also just mention, and I, and I think you'd agree, that any of these other kinds of changes we're talking about often come as the world, and again, this is a world that we say is lost and fallen, wicked, don't, don't, don't let us fall into the trap of being what the world is, and yet it's the world that seems to move in these directions long before. So when it comes to increased roles for women, for instance, the world was you know 30 years ahead of that in terms of the church. And, and so maybe you're right. Maybe Kate Kelly individually slowed something down. Um, I think that's debatable. But on the other hand, I think the world at large was pushing for uh, gender equality. And uh, the church has to, on some level, respond to a world that's changing in spite of saying that world is lost and fallen. And as it changes, we should stay as far away from those changes as possible. And I, and I hope you do see that that is a message that's deeply found within the church that, you know, this is the chosen people that the world is something other and less than. Um, and I know president Uchtdorf recently, a few years ago combated that message in the same conference that uh, president Monson was reassuring us that we were in a lost and fallen world that was moving away from the, the principles of Jesus. Um, I, I hope you can at least acknowledge that the world itself often seems this lost and fallen world often seems to be a, a, a kind of a further ahead on the curve. Uh, no, I'm not going to acknowledge that because I, I don't think that's true in, in, in the broadest of senses. I, I, I mean, you're, you're talking about very specific kinds of social concerns, but I think on the broader level, in terms of, of, of individual kindness, in terms of concern for other human beings, I think the church is way, way ahead of the curve with regard to where the world is. I, 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 I think that's absolutely true. Um, 
At the same time, I, I am happy to acknowledge, for instance, that that there are good people outside of the church, and there are people outside of the church who are better than people who are inside the church. And I, I remember growing up uh, talking to my father about that, and I remember complaining about, you know, so-and-so, this member of the church, they really bother me, and, you know, shouldn't the church be better than this? And my father's response was, okay, look at so-and-so. Would that person be a better person if they were not a member of the church? And I hadn't thought of it in that ter in those terms. And that came back to the President Hinckley's uh, statement, I think, or maybe it's President Benson who said, church makes bad men good and good men better. And I guess that's a sexist construction because he probably should say bad people good and good people better. But I, I think the church is a tremendous benefit in people's lives, and I think the church creates a sense of community and creates uh, an area of kindness and concern that you do not see in the world at large, that you don't have that kind of community uh, outside of the church uh, in, in the way I, I think the church does that better than almost anybody else. That is not to say that there are not other communities, that there are not other religions, that there are not other people that are abiding by those kinds of principles. But but I, I'm not going to concede, no, the, the world is not lost and fallen, because I think the world is lost and fallen, and I think we are coming out of a lost and fallen world in the church, and, and, and at the same time bringing our sins, our weaknesses, and all of those things into the church. And so those same elements find their way into the church because we are a lost and fallen race of people. Uh, so I... You know, saying, okay, the church has gotten things wrong and using that as an indictment of the entire church and saying, see, the church is worse than the rest of the world. I don't think that's a fair comparison to make. I think what's a fair comparison to make is that the church uh, is capable of making mistakes because it is, it is filled with imperfect people. But the church is doing all it can to lift up the lives of its members. And I think in that regard, it is doing a very good job of doing that. So I want to I want to push a little bit, which is that um, I think I'm making a different kind of argument. And let me give some examples. So the church uh, has a stance on birth control. And that stance is a hardline stance. And it it gives talks in its manuals, its periodicals, and its lessons, in its general conference talks and other places, where it says that the world is moving in direction A, and we're holding ground B, and we need you as members of the church to be resistant to the lost and fallen world, only to have, over time, the church soften its own perspective on birth control and, and, you know, relinquish some of its authority in saying, like, absolutely no, to a point where it starts to say, like, you know, a couple should discuss it and they should bring their bishop in. And now to the point where it says it's completely between a husband and a wife. Um, cremation. We, the church, it's such a small issue, but the church was adamantly against cremation in earlier times. And it said the world is moving a certain direction. And then over time, the church softens its position on cremation. With race and the priesthood, the world is moving in a racial, in terms of racial equality, and the church says, look at the world, there it is, lost and fallen, gone on, going off over there again, and here we are, holding our ground, we're going to stay in this position, 
And we need you as members to be strong and to hold this position. And then over time, the church ends up moving the same direction as the world uh, on the roles of women and men in the church, on the LGBT issue. Um, When we go back to women's ERA, when we look at a social issue where the world says, look, we have to treat each other better. Often, and I'm not going to say every time, because I think the immigration one, although, again, debatable, because I think the world was moving that way anyway, but I think the church was a little more out front than it normally is. It seems like on social issues where we're saying, hey, we need to treat each other better. We need to be kinder to each other and treat each other simply as humans in spite of whatever other diversity we have. The church seems to always step in and say like, hey, Jesus told us to hold this ground. The world's making it confusing but we're going to hold this ground only to have the church then slowly begin to go the way that the world has recommended it go and has gone itself. And and I'm wondering if if you see that and acknowledge that, or if you're saying that's not what's happening at all. And and I don't think you're saying the second, by the way. Um, I think you're holding, trying to hold some kind of middle ground. No, I'm not necessarily holding a middle ground. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to push back very hard because I've never, ever in, in my entire lifetime in the church, had an experience in the church where I have been taught to be unkind. How about Prop 8? Uh, all right, you got me there, I suppose, because I disagree with Prop 8. Yeah. Um, uh, I wasn't in California at the time. I got, that, That's kind of a weak excuse. No, I, I, you, make a, you make a good point there with Prop 8. And, and with, but, well, even then, though, the issue, the issue, the issue in terms of kindness. The church is trying to hold a kind of middle ground. I think I actually just wrote an article about this for for uh, the Utah Bee. I don't know if they're going to publish it or not. Is, is Elder Oaks asking? I know. I, let me ask you another question, Elder Oaks. I I know we use the rhetoric of look. There's those gay people and they're members of the church, and we need to be nice to them but we're just not going to concede. But you also recognize, you've admitted as much, you recognize that the position we hold is still causing them harm. So while Elder Oaks likes to hold the position that, hey, look, I'm saying be nice, the reality is if you're gay, Elder Oaks is not giving extra niceness in your life. He's causing harm and trauma. I think it's not fair to say, look, these guys, these guys are never causing hurt and intentionally and by intentionally no, no. holding a position that hurts and refusing to see that there's a better way to do things. Uh, no, I'd have to agree with that. I, I, I'd have to agree with that, particularly on this issue. I, so, so this article that I had just written, I ended up quoting Spencer W. Kimball from the miracle of forgiveness, which, uh, you know, heaven bless Spencer W. Kimball is a terrible book, and and he he talks about homosexuals as perverts uh, who are engaged in an ugly sin, repugnant to those who find no temptation in it. And the glorious thing to remember is that it is curable. And he he the, the summation that has haunted me for decades is he says therefore to those who say that this practice or any other evil is incurable. I respond, how can you say the door cannot be opened until your knuckles are bloody, till your head is bruised, till your muscles are sore? It can be done. 
And I've thought about that and imagined thousands upon thousands of vulnerable and terrified LGBT teenagers pounding against the door until their hands, heads, and muscles are bruised and bloodied beyond recognition, and the door remains firmly shut. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's a very strong argument that you are making there in that regard. And, but I, I look at the church, and the church is now um, moved to a position that is preferable to, to then-Elder Kimball's position in the miracle of forgiveness. But Elder Kimball's position had the benefit of being logically consistent with itself. After all, if homosexuals are just voluntary perverts... Right, if it's a choice. If it's a choice, then we are fully justified in excluding the blessings of the church from them if they refuse to repent. Well, now we say it is not a choice, but we're sort of trying to pick up one end of the stick without picking up the other. And we say, these deep desires, your basic fundamental sexuality is a, is a part of who you are and is not a choice... And there's absolutely no way you could express that righteously. And and that's not just a position I disagree with. It's a position that is at war with itself. It, it, it's it's logically untenable. It's it's inconsistent. It can't stand. And eventually, I think it will resolve one way or the other. And so so I look at that, and and the thing that I wanted to push back hard on was the. Uh, Particularly with regard to race, I mean one of, one of the most one of the most profound memories I have as a kid. I grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood, and I remember making uh, a racist joke about Jews that I had heard, and uh, using racist slurs. And I don't think I had ever seen my father get more angry with me than when he heard me say those things. He says, "I never want to hear that kind of thing ever come out of your mouth ever again." And he would have said the same thing if I had been making, uh, you know, I, 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 by this time, I think we probably had received the priesthood revelation. I'm not sure how old I was. Uh, I was prepubescent. But, uh, but I never have I ever been in a church setting where I, with regard to race, where I have been taught to treat anybody with anything less than full respect and full equality. Uh, with regard to how I have been taught to respect women and to be kind to women, I don't, I don't want to sound patronizing, but I, I have never, ever uh, received any instruction from the church that I am to treat women as anything less than full equals. Now, you can, you can push back and say, well, you've been taught that women can't have the priesthood, and that is correct. I have been taught that, uh, but... For instance, when I've gone into professional environments or work environments, I've never had a teaching from the ch church that would would tell me that I am supposed to not respect a woman manager or a woman who is my superior in the workplace, and that I'm to treat them with any kind of... I mean, I, I don't think those are messages that were, were imparted to me in the church. Now you can you can push back and say okay but there are these institutional problems because women do not have the equal leadership roles in the church that men do and you can certainly I think push back and say that we do not treat our LGBT brothers and sisters with the kind of respect and love and inclusion that we need to treat them with and I will agree with that and I 
I, I, I will concede that the church is capable of making mistakes and that the church, I, I, I just, my expectation, though, again, is that that's, that's where the Lord's people have kind of always been. I don't know if you, if you were to go back to the Nephites, uh, particularly in areas when they weren't right, the times when they weren't righteous, when they were going through the Nephite pride cycle, and say, well, these were always on the cutting edge of social change, and they were always right when the world was wrong. Uh, I think that there are times in the Book of Mormon where prophets say, the Lamanites are more righteous than you are, and you're the ones that have the prophets. You're the ones that should know better, and yet they're more righteous than you are. Uh, I think you could probably point to times in the Old Testament when the Israelites were making terrible mistakes, and when they're wandering in the desert for 40 years because they're not willing to listen to the prophet and not willing to follow their counsel. Uh, you can, you, I, I just don't, the idea that, that the church always has to have uh, people who are better than everybody else around them. I, I, I don't, I don't know that that's what the Lord is telling us is always going to be the case. I don't know that that's something that we're always supposed to expect. I, I think that the church has a greater responsibility than the rest of the world. But I don't think saying, okay, well, the church has made some mistakes, and so therefore the church is, the world is always better than the church. I don't think that that's a, a tenable position. It, what I think a lot of people experience is as they go through what's called faith development, as they leave their tribal view and begin to see that all people, regardless of what makes various people different than themselves, whether it's you know ethnicity, whether it's race, whether it's uh, sexual attraction, whether it's gender, whatever it may be, uh, when people go into faith development, they end up recognizing that the authorities of their tribe are laying out rules and boundaries and labels that don't work. And so what they start to do is they start to see like, oh, that guy over there is just as human as me. That lady over there is just as human as me. And when they wake up within the tribe of Mormonism, they say, they say like, wait a minute, I want to be, I want to have complete equality with people in spite of what color skin we have. I want to have complete equality regardless of what gender. I want to have complete equality regardless of what sexual attraction. I want to have complete equality um, regardless of, you know, again, name it. And, and yes, I don't want to get into like, yeah, there's issues with people who have attractions towards children. There's people who have attraction towards animals. I don't, I don't want to get into the weeds because I think there's already ways to set up moral rules of consent and things like that that take care of those issues. But when we see people who are different, and then we look over at, at our, our religious institution, which is balking at treating people equally, suddenly you recognize like there's more wisdom inside your gut than there is in those 15 men that you've set up as authorities of your tribe. In other words, Bill Real sitting here on February 21st, and Jim Bennett, by the way, here on February 21st, 2019, inside our gut, the Holy Ghost has told us, if we want to call it that, that these men are wrong on how they treat LGBT folks. And yet somehow, 
15 prophets, seers, and revelators in a room when Elder Cook, as you point, you and I were talking about the other day, Elder Cook saying, I've, I've heard his voice, I've seen his face. This idea that these men talk to Jesus, they want us to think that. And the reality is that on some level, they, they don't have the maturity or capacity at this point in their development to say, oh yeah, gay people are just like me and I need to knock this crap off. And so when I say there's more wisdom inside me about how to treat other human beings than these 15 men all together have, then there's, it makes little sense for me to concede any moral authority to them and to give them the benefit of the doubt when they've got it wrong over and over and over again on how to treat human beings. And so at some point, I take back my own authority and I say, look, I'm doing better than they are on this thing, and I've outgrown the church. And I can, I can pretend these men have some kind of special ability, but the reality is they're not giving me any results that, that show me that they have wisdom to offer me on how to be kind to people and treat people as Jesus would have me. So as I've outgrown my tribe, and it's happening right now to thousands and thousands of people, and it feels like fracture at first, but to everybody I've spoken to who stepped away, I've had one person, and I've spoken to thousands at this point, of everybody who stepped away saying, like, I don't believe it anymore. It doesn't work anymore. I've outgrown it. I've spoken to thousands. One person says, if I could go back, I would. Everybody else says, I'm better off outside. I, I, am, I am kinder. I am more aware. I'm, I'm more open to learning and information. I'm more open to new ideas. I'm more open to being around those who are different than me and seeing them as my equal. And, and so that's the journey, Jim. And, and it's why I'm pushing so hard in this episode, because I think we've got to come to grips that these 15 men collectively, the way the system works, it inhibits them from seeing that humans are human beings and stepping to the plate and saying, we got to knock off the stuff we're doing that hurts people. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, and, and, I'm, and there's a lot that I can agree with there. Um, the older I get, I sometimes describe myself as a universalist who believes it's just the Mormons who handle all the paperwork. It, I, I mean, anybody that sees people outside of the church as something other, as as someone who is not fully human, or I mean, I, I, and I don't and I don't think church members see people outside the church as not fully human. They may see them as 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 they, they may, there may be a sense of superiority that is not justified, and I can I can be happy to concede that. Prior to 78, and even up until, I mean, it's only recently to this gospel topic essay that we had disavowed these theories. We've allowed them to sit there unchallenged for so long. It, it's, we've, we've allowed black people to think on some level they're less than until that 2013 gospel topic essay came out. We're allowing gay people to feel less than. We allow on some level women to feel like their voices don't matter as much as these priesthood men. Um, and, and we've done it with other, other you know, the Lamanites. Uh, we can go back into our history and see how Brigham Young treated the Indians, blaming them for mountain meadows. Um, it just feels like we're deeply in a tribal way of thinking of things, and we're often pointing at anybody who's not white, European, Utah, male, uh, priesthood holder, active member in the church, and we say, like, those are the lost and fallen. And I'll point this out, too. We don't have a single healthy story of somebody who's left our church 
in the search for truth. In other words, somebody leaves Catholicism and comes in and we applaud them and we, we say, wow, well, how courageous you are. And when people leave over that, ser- that same search for truth, we have nothing good to say about them. We do not have a single positive talk in our manuals about someone who stepped away from Mormonism and done so honestly and done so with the conviction of their own heart and blessed them for it. I, I don't understand. Well, that, that's not what the purpose of the church is. Uh, the, the idea that the church is, is, is going to start telling stories about people who are better off outside of the church. Uh, I mean, I, I think. Do you see the damage you do to relationships, though, when you don't acknowledge that? So you have a mixed faith couple. You have a husband and a wife. The wife's in, the husband's out. And you make all people who leave sound like they're broken and less than. Are you doing anything healthy to that marriage? I feel like you're you're pushing me in a direction that that is requiring me to sort of abandon uh, what I think the church ought to be doing and what the church actually is. For instance, I, I mean because I I I don't want to say. I, I have to agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I, I absolutely agree that not acknowledging that people outside the church and people who leave the church are decent, good people uh, does tremendous damage. I, I absolutely have to agree with that. Uh, but where, where do you seem to be pushing this whole conversation then is, okay, so the church is is a, a vehicle for evil, that the church is doing far more damage than good, that the church is hurting far more people than it's helping, and that the weaknesses and the failures and the setbacks and all of the things that are, are, are part of the human condition within and without of the church, that when all of those things manifest themselves in the church, that is evidence that the church is a... a a uh, force for evil that ought to disband because people are better off without it. And I think that is absolutely 100% not true. I think that the church, the amount of good that the church does, the amount of people it lifts up, the amount of people it inspires, the amount of people that it helps, that it heals, that it, it, it is far, far, far greater than the amount of people it has damaged. And I have to concede, I am, I, am, I, I am more than willing to concede that the church has done damage, that the church has made some profound errors throughout its history. Uh, I have to concede that I personally have made profound errors in my own life. I don't think the profound errors that I have made in my own life define the totality of who I am. And I don't think that the profound errors that the church has made define the totality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it has been taught and practiced within the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I, I mean, I, I sit here and listen to this, and, and I recognize uh, the tremendous amount of pain that people have suffered within the church, and it breaks my heart. And I recognize that it's real. I'm not going to, to try to diminish it. 
I'm not going to, tr to try to deny its legitimacy. I, I'm not try going to try to do any of those things. I, I look at that pain and I think, uh, I, 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 if, if that negates all of the good that the church has done throughout all of its history, uh, then, then that means that any kind of thing that a bad person does ought, or, or the, that a good person does, any kind of mistake that they make, any kind of error, uh, that that should be what defines them as a human being. And I, and I just don't think that that is true on an individual level. I don't think that's how Jesus deals with each of us individually. He recognizes that we are more than the worst thing that we have ever done. Uh, that we are the totality of who we are, and, and I, it, it just it, it just frustrates me to no end uh, because I, I have had so many experiences within the boundaries of this church that have taught me that God's hand is in this church, that I have access to the divine through this church, and that I am strengthened by the love and the care that is manifest in the membership of this church. Uh, that, 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 that when you come back and say, well, look at all these terrible things the church has done, that I'm supposed to then take all of that good and throw it into, in, in, throw it on the fire and say, oh, yeah, none of this matters. None of those experiences are real. None of that has any value. None of that has any validity. And I'm going to define this church by all of its worst moments and not give any credit to all of the wonderful moments and all of the great things that it has done for me. I, you know, I, that just that just affects me on a profound level and, and deeply frustrates me. And, and, and it also says, okay, everybody within the church who is frustrated by all of the things that you're describing, all of those people should leave and abandon the church to all of the people who have no problem with discriminating against the LGBT community and have no problem with racism and have no problem with all of those things, uh, that I think would do a tremendous disservice to the world because I think that would diminish the church in a way that, that I don't think would be helpful to anybody. And would, you know, so, so I don't know, I may be wandering far afield here and I may be, I, mean, I, I hope I'm not getting too contentious or too frustrated, but, no, no, no. I, I, I don't, I don't have any anger towards you at all. I don't, I, I think we're arguing in favor of two perspectives and we both see damage and hurt being done. And you're trying to argue a position of, in spite of that, here's the good here. And, and I'm saying, um, that that's so significant. It's so significant. And the lack of real wisdom in the leadership to be able to correct course in a way that protects people to actually say like, like it's not that hard if you're a Mormon to say like, let me look at this objectively as possible and see that I'm hurting people, especially the LGBT community. When you see the suicide rate go up the way it has in Utah and you say that's unrelated to Mormonism, it's probably elevation. I've, it probably I've has never, to do with I've it. never said that personally. I know, no, I know you have, have, but I never, no, no, I know you have, and I'm talking to the institution right. and I'm talking it's news outlets and it's public affairs and those kinds of things. Um, for 15 men to sit in a room and go, it's more important that we self-perpetuate us as an institution and hold up our authority and not look like we made a mistake 
than to sit down and go like, ooh, we goofed up and we goofed up bad. And this is going to have really serious repercussions to the faith of our members, but so be it because our job is to protect people. When I see them so immature as to not be able to make that step, here's the difference. The race and priesthood thing, uh, that black kid could go home to his black family. He wasn't going to hang himself from the rafters of his home. He wasn't going to take his life because he had a smaller tribe in his home that was able to say like, hey, we're all black here, no big deal. That gay kid goes to a house where his parents are orthodox, where his siblings are orthodox, and they've gone on missions. And, and he's saying like, I don't fit, and I don't know what to do, and the church is telling me to be celibate, and I love this church, and I think it's true, but I don't know how I fit here, and I'm somehow broken, and if I admit this, everybody's going to see me as less than, and the kid ends up falling into depression and takes his life. Like, it isn't that hard for 15 really good men, if they're really good, and I'm not saying they're better than us, but for 15 really good men to sit in a room and look at each other and to look in the mirror and say, like, we've messed up, and we're hurting people. And we got to correct course no matter what the repercussions are. We can't do it slow so as to maintain looking like we know what we're doing. We got to come out tomorrow and say, we screwed up and we screwed up big and we are costing people's lives and this is not okay. And God is not happy with this. And I'm, and I'm passionate, Jim, because I've talked to these kids after they've made these attempts or after they've thought about it. And they pointed at the church as the problem. And nobody wants to go out and interview these people. Nobody wants to go out and interview these kids that have attempted to take their life or have thought about suicide because these kids are saying it's the church. And so we don't want to get their point of view. We don't actually want to do a study in Utah that goes out and asks these kids if we just took the kids who attempted suicide and didn't complete it and just said, what led to this? We'd know right off the bat what the causes are, but we don't want their story because to get their story makes bad light on the church. So my problem is once I see 15 men incapable of doing the right thing to protect children and and holding up their authority and saying, look, we cannot be seen as doing the wrong thing. People will leave in droves. I don't give a damn. I don't give a damn because these are kids' lives. And so when they can't make that step, then you're right, Jim. I say like, ooh, I can't be part of this anymore. I can't be part of something that is so oblivious to its own doing or knows what it's doing and simply wants to perpetuate its authority. Like it no longer, I'm 40 years old. When I was 20, more, I'm telling you, I'll, I'll frankly admit it to you. You're the only entire, 40 years old. I'm 10 years older than you are. You're 10 years older than me. When I was, kid, when I was 20 years old, um, the church was the perfect thing at the perfect moment for me. And, and I have no problem admitting that. But now that I'm 40 and I've, I see the world in a different way, I no longer see these 15 men as having wisdom sufficient enough to be out front leading me. But they are so behind the times on every issue that has to do with human beings that I value that I no longer see it as like, oh, I should probably still give deference to these 15 men and allow them any capacity to trump the wisdom inside of me. Like, like on every issue, I write down on a piece of paper, other than maybe the immigration one, which I'll concede. Um, but I've come to that space too now, just later than they have. On every other issue, I'm ahead of them. And I don't mean that arrogantly. Like, I know, what, I know that being gay is just being human. It's just like being left-handed. They don't get it. And with the race thing, until, they were, until it was proven to them, like, they, like this church is going to suffer if you don't make the move, they couldn't do it. These guys don't have the capacity 
to make dramatic changes that they see will disrupt the membership, even when those dramatic changes involve acknowledging a really serious mistake and to stop treating people as if they're wrong or broken or less than. And, and, I, and again, this is an issue I'm passionate about. I, I'm ready to move on from it. I'll let you get some last words in, but this is why so many people are struggling right now. They see a leadership that is stubborn to making the right moves. I, I, I can't disagree with any of that. I can't disagree with your passion. Uh, and, and I would love to see people interview uh, these, these children that have tried to take their own lives. I, I, I would love to have this discussion. I would love to open up this discussion to the wider membership of the church. There is nothing you have said in this regard that I disagree with. Uh, and, and yet at the same time, I keep coming back to the value of the church as a whole, even as the church makes the mistakes and even profound mistakes. I, I, you know. And I hear that because being Mormon means a lot to you and, and it meant a lot to me too. It's not just, it's not just my tribal identity. It's not just, well, golly, I grew up this way and I just can't give it up. Uh, I, I have had personal profound experiences that have told me I'm in the right place at the right time. And, and when I have cried out to the Lord about these issues and said, how can I stay in the church when these terrible things are happening, when children are taking their own lives, and when we, we are not recognizing the humanity of our LGBT brothers and sisters, and, and, and membership on the, in the church was on the line for me. In, in taking this to the Lord. I mean, I did not take this lightly. And I was, I was, I, I would say almost eager for an opportunity to leave uh, because this was so deeply frustrating to me and so deeply wrong. And, and my connection to the divine directly, not through 15 men, not through anybody else, but the answer to prayer that I personally received was be patient it's not the answer I wanted to receive. It's not the answer that that I can readily defend in the light of all of the things that you have just said. But the answer was, you know, be patient. Do not leave. Be patient. And it will all work out in the end. And, and that does not, you know, so, so, so my, the answer I'm giving you is, is one that I guess comes from something other than just just my own sort of rational assessment of the situation because because my reaction to all of this would just be I've had enough of this. I don't want to defend this. I don't want to be in a position where I have to defend this because I believe it is wrong. And and I feel like the Lord has said to me this is where you need to be and you need to be patient with these men and with this church. And, and my hand is still in it. And, you know, so I, you know, that, 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 that kind of leaves me, uh, in a place that I guess that, that I, I, I can't defend rationally. I have to defend it to some degree, uh, from an area of faith. Uh, I, I, I do want to say, and it was when we were, when we were discussing, or at least when you talked to, yet last time, and we were we were sort of 
trying to approach what it was we were going to discuss today. Um, I, I, I want to ask you a question with regard to what you think is going through the minds of these 15 men. Uh, because I know that, um, for instance, Grant Palmer, who wrote The Insider's View of Mormon Origins, he told the story of a, a general authority who was supposedly coming to his meetings and um, and said every every apostle figures out finally that the church really isn't true. And they all know it isn't true. And Dieter Uchtdorf took longer than some of the other ones did. But eventually they all figure it out. And and I looked at that and I thought, it, and so I wanted to ask you, do you believe that the 15 men who who you you say are indifferent to, to human suffering, uh, do you believe that they genuinely um, believe that they are per perpetuating a fraud? Um. That's the million dollar question, right? And and I don't I don't know that it's there's a there's evidence other than um, anecdotal or tangential. There there's not evidence enough to make an argument one way or the other. What I would say is that I think there's a lot of pressure on these men to uphold a system. I think there's a lot of pressure on these men to maintain a vibrant church as vibrant as they possibly can. And in doing so, you cannot abruptly admit mistakes. You cannot. It has to be slow and over a long period of time. I'll also say that I think the mechanisms of the church to some degree are intentional. In other words, John DeLynn sits down with Elder Holland. And, and this is, John DeLynn's relayed this story several times. And I've had conversations with Elder Holland as well. And, and I because of those conversations, I deeply believe what John is saying is true. When John has said, look, people are getting divorced when one spouse has a faith crisis solely for that issue because the spouse feels like they have to have allegiance to the church or to the spouse. Why can't you guys talk in general conference telling the members that a faith crisis is not uh, a sufficient reason to get divorced if everything else is good? And Elder Holland's response was, the church isn't ready for that message. Now, when I hear that, what I hear is an intentional putting things a certain way that are less healthy because it doesn't reflect well on a leader or it doesn't reflect well on the institution. Think about how long it took to say those theories in the race ban were not true. Think about how long it took for an Elder Holland talk where he said the kid had same-sex attraction and it wasn't going to get better and nor did anybody think it would. Like the messages of healthiness come so late that they feel deeply intentional and withholding other messages that would be healthy also feels deeply intentional that on some level, the messaging is coordinated. And whether that means these guys know the church isn't true or not, I don't know, but I, but I know it isn't healthy. And I know you're pointing to goodness. I'm not disagreeing. There's goodness here. Like it's not a net sum game. It's not the church is either evil 100% or it's healthy 100%. What I would argue, though, is that if we look at the characteristics and mechanisms of a high-demand fundamentalist religion, if we take the things that make Scientology unhealthy, Mormonism has those things to one degree or another. And when I look at a high-demand fundamentalist religion, 
Um, in fact, let me hear, let me pull this up really quick because this would be actually, I think, a good point. And I want to say, you, be, you created a beautiful segue, by the way, which is your spiritual experience, which I want to get into. And unfortunately, we've got about a half an hour, maybe 40 minutes of time. But when I look up mechanisms of an unhealthy group, now, again, these are biased because somebody created these by looking at certain systems they deemed as unhealthy and deciding these mechanisms weren't healthy. But I agree with it. And I think to some degree you will as well. Number one, absolute authoritarianism without meaningful accountability, which I deeply believe the LDS Church has. There is no real way to offer critical feedback where it is responded to in real time. Number two, no tolerance for questions or critical inquiry. This also has a play in Mormonism, right? Questions are honored, but opposition is not. Questions are good, but doubts are bad. That's the messaging we give from the top. Um, no meaningful financial disclosure regarding budget expenses, such as independently audited financial statement. The church is very private about its finances. Unreasonable fear about the outside world, such as impending catastrophe, evil conspiracies, and persecutions. That's Mormonism to a T. There is no legitimate reason to leave. Former followers are always working. I'm sorry, always wrong in leaving, negative or even evil. Very true. We just talked about it. Former members often relate the same stories of abuse and reflect a similar pattern of grievances true. There are records, books, news articles, and television programs that document the abuses of the group or leader. True. Followers feel they can never be good enough. We have a very deep problem of people not feeling like they measure up to the gospel and Mormonism. The group leader is always right. And if he's not right, your job is to be quiet about him being wrong. Um, and that's my, that last part is me adding that in. The group leader is the exclusive means of knowing truth or receiving validation. No other process of discovery is really acceptable or credible. That's the last one. That's true too. Mormonism says it welcomes all truth. Any truth, wherever it be, we take it in. We say that, but that's lip service. The reality is if you find a piece of truth outside Mormonism that the top leadership isn't espousing, it is not welcome. It is seen as false doctrine. It's apostate. It's a, it's a deception of the devil. Very, very rarely can you go into a class or any type of church setting and offer a new idea. For instance, if you walked into class and said, these brethren are wrong on this issue on the LGBT uh, members, you would get pushback and you might be dragged in at some point, depending on what ward you're in, you might get dragged in by a leader and you might have a disciplinary court. I see the church as deeply unhealthy. And whether these leaders know it's true or know it's false, I don't know. But I know that those mechanisms are present and I deeply believe those are adequate signs of a deeply unhealthy, fundamentalist, high-demand religion. Again, I, mean, I, I didn't stop you with any of those lists, but I, I would push back to some degree or another on each of them. Uh, because I, I don't think that that's how the church operates in practice to a large degree. I, I have spent my entire life uh, asking questions and expressing doubts. Uh, and I have yet to have an experience where, where I, I have been nervous that my membership is in jeopardy for doing so. Uh, the, the most, probably the most, the closest I've come to that was when I publicly came out against the 2015 policy. And I had a number of people who said, well, why don't you just leave? And I was astonished at how many people were eager to see me outside of the church. But uh, the reason why I asked you the question as to what you believe these men believe is that, is that I, I think the way that this has been painted in this conversation today 
is that you essentially have two options. Uh, you have the option that these men are um, deliberate deceivers who, for reasons of power or whatever else, are deliberately doing harm to to people uh, and are trying. I, I mean, for for. I don't know what would motivate a human being to do this, but uh, they they have just decided we we are going to perpetuate a system that we know is false, and we're going to lie about it. We're going to lie about our relationship with Jesus. We're going to just perpetuate this fraud for our own purposes. Um, either that or these men are stupid or callous, or they don't care about human suffering. Uh, they're not uh, sophisticated enough to recognize uh, any of these kinds of things uh, or whatever else. And, and, and those seem to be the only two options available to me as you list this litany of sins and lay them at the feet of the brethren and say, these 15 men have fallen down so badly. And these are your options. They're either idiots or they're liars. And I don't accept either characterization. I believe these 15 men uh, love this church and love this institution, not just out of a sense of tradition or a sense of loyalty or a sense of obligation. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind that they are believers, that they fully believe in their own calling. I, I have had enough direct interaction with these men uh, and with you know members of my family who are descended from prophets who have lived with these men firsthand these are not men who think they are perpetuating a fraud they believe that they have been given an overwhelming responsibility to be able to administer the kingdom of god on earth and i think to a large degree the kind of reticence you see to make quick moves in one direction or another, that's starting to change. President Nelson has made a whole bunch of moves very quickly that I think nobody expected him to do. But uh, but the reticence to just sort of radically shift the church one way or the other, I don't think comes necessarily from callousness or comes from, oh, I don't recognize LGBT people. It comes from, I think, an overwhelming sense of responsibility to be able to get it right, which to some degree uh, limits their ability to respond as quickly as you would like and as I would like, and I think as a lot of members of the church would like. But you talk about Elder Holland telling John DeLynn the church isn't ready for that message. That implies that eventually the church will be ready for the message. The message isn't right, and what it's uh, the message isn't wrong the message is going to require additional time for the church to be able to get there. And, and so I, I look at this and say the church is going in the right direction. They are going more slowly than I would like. They are certainly going more slowly than you would like. In fact, too slowly for you. And, and, and you've decided that you can't be within, uh, I mean, you can't be part of that anymore. And I entirely respect that. And I entirely respect others who make that same determination. I have not made that determination because I believe eventually we get there. We will get to where the Lord wants us to be. The Lord is patient with us. We need to be patient with the church.
But I, I do not think it is appropriate to consider that these 15 men are, are callously ignoring suffering, that they are just too stupid to see it, or they're too drunk on their own power. I, I do not see that in these 15 men. I think these are 15 men who have been given an overwhelming responsibility, and, and they can't act unless all 15 of them are united. And that's an astonishing responsibility. And CEOs, I mean, you, you mentioned Scientology. Whatever David Miscavige wants to do, Scientology does at the drop of a hat. Uh, that's not the way these 15 men work. To some degree, I mean, the president of the church puts his foot down, things happen. But at the same time, if, if the president of the church is trying to do something in opposition to the united voice of the 12, it doesn't happen. It's not going to work. All 15 men need to be united. And that ends up meaning that changes take place slowly and in ways that, that, uh, that uh, are probably not fast enough to have kept Bill real in the church. And I can respect that. But I'm not going to leave the church because I think that the, because I recognize the, the the overwhelming value and the purpose of the church, which is not to be on the cutting edge of social change, but which is to bring people to Christ. And the church continues to do that extraordinarily well. And I think we'll continue to do that well in the years to come. Um, you you led a, a nice segue into the next section, which we'll try to cover here quickly. I, I don't want to I don't want to make this go any longer. It needs to, and I and I hope I'm hope you're willing to come back on one more time and sure. just to kind of look back and say like, okay, this is the ground we've covered. I think you know I learned this, you learned that. Um, you talked about your spiritual witness is you know that everything else pointed like, hey, maybe maybe the most rational thing to do is to step away, but God gave me a message to be patient, and so here I am. And and I want to say too. The idea of like, hey, I look at I look at the authorities within my tribe, and I've had experience with them, and here's how I see them. And, and I want to preface the topic we're going into this way, which is that if we look at other tribes, Seventh Day Adventist, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, if we look at other high demand fundamentalist religions, and even ones that are led by a group of people rather than an individual, um, we we can also see unhealthy mechanisms, and we can look at their religion and go like, oh yeah, that's unhealthy. That probably isn't the healthiest place to be in. And then when it's our tribe, it's harder It's harder to step back. It's harder to step back and say like, ah, oh, no, I, I just, I can't, I can't, you know, we can't make those steps as easily. But I grant that you've had a spiritual experience and that plays a part. And, and my argument would be that spiritual experiences are had everywhere. We talked about this, I think in episode one, or I know at least by episode two, we covered it a little bit. And and you you were making the argument that a Latter Day Saint spiritual experience, that either the experience is fundamentally different, or the interpretation is fundamentally different, in a way that it separates it from other spiritual experiences in other tribes. I don't think that's the argument I was making. Then, then I would love to know. Let me pose the question then. So you had a spiritual experience that asked you to stay, and you take that as hey, or and you've had a spiritual experience with the Book of Mormon. And you take those experiences and you say, the church is true. God's telling me the church is true, so I, and he's telling me to be here. Or he's telling me to be here, and I'm interpreting that as it, that the church is true. Or, or he's telling me the Book of Mormon has good stuff in it. Or he's telling me the Book of Mormon is true. Like, like, like those messages are subjective to some extent. Um, and I see other people in other religions having 
essentially the same kinds of spiritual experiences. Some religious tribes ask them to interpret them a certain way. Other religious tribes are much more like us, where they're asking to interpret them as if that religious community is true. We can easily go to our break-offs of our tribe, FLDS, Centennial Park, others like that, and see that same dynamic at work. What makes the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's the spiritual experiences that come to a Latter-day Saint in the Mormon LDS tradition, not in the break-offs, not anywhere else, not in the Baptist Church, not in the Methodist Church, what makes those spiritual experiences more valid at telling you the truth of your church than their spiritual experiences are at telling them the truth of theirs? Nothing. Uh, because I think what the way you frame the question is, is remarkably loaded. Because the argument that I think I was making in the first time that this came up is not that people don't have spiritual experiences that are valid outside of the church. It's that churches do not um, use the narrative of spiritual experiences largely in the same way that Latter-day Saints do. For instance, Catholicism. If you were to talk to a Catholic and you were to talk to them about their spiritual experiences, uh, it, it would be very unlikely that they would frame those spiritual experiences in the sense that, well, you know, I was trying to pray whether or not the Pope was true, or the Pope was was the, or or, the, or that the Catholic Church is true, and I received an answer that the Catholic Church is true. I mean, they'll start talking about, you know, the the one holy apostolic church and and the, the tradition. I mean, they'll they'll frame the justification for the truth of that church in a much different way than Latter Day Saints do. I mean, you don't have Catholic testimony meetings where they stand up and bear their spiritual witness of how they know that their relig that their, their faith is true. Uh, that you know, it, you, you'll talk to an evangelical Christian, uh, and most of them don't don't see the a lot of them don't see the necessity of a hierarchical church organization or of any ordinances. All you need to do is have a direct spiritual experience with Jesus. And be saved. And once you are saved, you know, then you go to a church in order to help save others or whatever else. But but they they they're they're not describing the kinds of spiritual experiences that Latter-day Saints are encouraged to seek. They are not, I, I mean, just you'll certainly never hear a Methodist stand up and say, I know that this is that the Methodist church is true. Uh, they're they're looking to sort of create an ecumenical body of Christ where the the denomination doesn't matter much one way or the other and just the relationship with Christ is what's important so i would never ever try to say that people outside of the church don't have spiritual experiences or that their spiritual experiences are less valid or less valuable or or less true than the spiritual experiences of people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. What I would say is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints asks people to pray about specific claims, particularly with regard to Moroni's promise. The Book of Mormon, more than anything else in my estimation, has been given to us as 
you need to go to the Lord and ask him if this is, in fact, exactly what it purports to be. If this is a, an ancient record that it was given by prophets uh, in order to gather people to Christ in the last days. And you need to consider, you know, Moroni's promise in verse 3 talks about you need to remember how merciful the Lord hath been from the children of Adam, even down until the time ye shall receive these things. I mean, you need to consider all of everything and put the Book of Mormon in that context, and then you need to ask the Lord if that is if it is true or if it is not true. And uh, th that kind of, of of experience and that kind of request by an institution doesn't exist outside of the church in many ways. And I mean, it exists, I, I would suppose, in in offshoots of the Latter Day Saint movement. But uh, that's not something that happens in the Catholic Church. That's not something that happens with Presbyterians and Methodists and, and all of that kind of thing. So I, 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 I would, I would say that this whole idea that every every person prays about their own church as to whether or not it's true. So why should we only believe Latter Day Saints when they say they've gotten an answer? And I would say that's not the way, that's not the context other people are looking at their churches. I would think the, the vast majority of people outside of the church uh, aren't even thinking in terms of a true church. Uh, I, I think that they're thinking in terms of, okay, well, how can I be saved? Or what do I need to do in order to prepare for the next life? Or And the idea that, well, there's there's a church that uh, you need to join in order to do that, a lot of them would say, why? I don't, I mean, a lot of them aren't even seeking that kind of a spiritual witness. So that's, that's how I would frame that and, and say that the Latter-day Saint experience is different from the experience of the world at large. Yeah. And, and let me agree before I push back. So I agree that most religious systems don't set up their faith in a, Go have a prayer, ask if this, you know, if Methodism is true, and then when you have a spiritual experience, that's an answer to the prayer. That said, so I agree with that. And so this is, this conversation, this particular issue is made complicated by that. But I think we can whittle through it. If, if, if we're willing to acknowledge, like, one, that if we do look at the offshoots, a group like Centennial Park, which I, I consider to be not as defunct like the FLDS and, and on same par as we are in terms of healthiness. Now that could be debated. People can climb in and, and into the conversation and debate whether, whether Centennial Park is healthier or less, you know, less healthy than uh, the LDS part, the LDS uh, breakoff. But that said, they are having the same experience. They have people who stand up and bear testimony. Um, while I agree there is a ton more manipulation in the FLDS group, we still have to acknowledge those people are having the spiritual experiences to testify. Now, we can write off their experiences because they've been overly manipulated to have them. But I think on some level, so have we. Testimonies gained in the bearing of it, for instance. The more you say it, the more you'll believe it. And there's an actual psychological phenomenon that says the more we repeat things, the more we actually believe them. So there are mechanisms in Mormonism too. When I look at a group like Centennial Park, I see members who are standing up and who are sharing the same kind of testimony. They know their church is true. God has told them. So let's just let's just use them solely as an example. 
What makes your spiritual experience more valid than their spiritual experience, which also points to their church being the one true and only living church of God on earth? I don't feel a responsibility to try to negate their spiritual experience. I have no idea what's happening in their souls. I have no idea uh, what God is saying to them. And I don't feel any responsibility to try to say, I, I, I don't feel like my spiritual experience or the validity of my spiritual experience uh, can only be sustained by tearing down the validity of the spiritual experience of someone in Centennial Park. I, 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 mean, I mean, I look at that and, I mean, yeah, you can point to the FLDS and you can point to other kinds of people and say, okay, well, I can judge them if I want to, but even them, I don't feel my, it's my responsibility to, uh, to assess the validity of anybody's encounter with the divine on any level in or out of the church. Uh, I stay in the church because I recognize and can understand my own connection to the divine that has taken place within the boundaries of this church. And, and, and that's where I stand. And, and, and I don't, I don't see any value in, in, uh, attacking anybody else. Okay. Let me ask it. Let me ask it a different way that keeps you from having to do that. If I weren't, if you were an outsider, just looking at the experiences of a Latter-day Saint in the LDS tradition, as well as a Mormon in the Centennial Park tradition, right? and you were to hear them both bear testimony, would you agree that there's probably no observable difference as an outsider? Sure. Yeah. Now, now let me ask sure. another question. This, is, this sounds like a different issue, but it points at the same thing. So I want to talk for a moment about priesthood power. And it's to make the connection that, again, observably, there seems to be no difference. If, if we were to go to the, a cancer hospital and, the, and go to the floor where all the kids are with cancer, and let's say it's got three wings in the hospital, and we, let's say it has four wings, in fact. Let's allow, let's allow a Catholic Guatemalan mother in Guatemala to be praying for one wing of those children. Let's have the atheists go down another wing and just wish the kids good luck and well wishes. Let's have, uh, let's have the, the Baptists go down another wing and do their thing. And let's have the Mormons go down the fourth wing and anoint with oil and lay hands on their head. I'm guessing that your rational mind would say like, yeah, and again, let me say this too, because I, I don't want your pushback to be there are miracles. I don't, I don't disagree. There are miracles. And as you and I both agreed, there's miracles across all of humanity. Um. Would there be any observable difference, you think, in the number of people who are healed or get better versus those four mechanisms of how we treat those four wings in the hospital? I don't know. What's your guess? Um, Do you think there'd be a discernible difference statistically? No. Yeah, no. And and maybe any one of those, because again, I think... Incredible things happen. I think cancer goes away when we least expect it to in some patients. Um, I think people would experience miracles. And I think it's a 25% chance on which wing would be the best. In other words, it's statistically insignificant and it's up to essentially some level of random chance. And I don't mean random as in it's just completely not God acting, but only that the Guatemalan mother may affect a miracle and the elders had no, did not. Um, 
And, and I think by you saying that, you're acknowledging on some level, like Mormon priesthood, we've given this idea that we lay hands on people's heads and we can pronounce miracles and they happen. But I don't think they happen to any greater degree than any other religious or even non-religious for that matter method of wishing people well and performing religious rituals or non-religious rituals to affect their good. And, and I'm simply saying that when it comes back to the spiritual witness, it's the same thing. It's not discernible. And so Mormonism is set it up in a way to say, you can know this church is true by these kinds of answers. And the reality is that's not the only place those kinds of answers happen. And there's a statistically insignificant way to discern as an outsider that there's answers happening there to any greater degree than anywhere else. And yes, other religious systems, other religious systems don't set their faith up in that way. But I'm guessing, again, if I were to push and say, if those religious systems did set themselves up in that way, you would acknowledge that there would be members in those religious systems who would have spiritual experiences as they prayed about the truth of their church. Well, I think Correct? Th- there's a reason they don't set themselves up in that way. Because I don't think that uh, Catholic cardinals have a lot of confidence that if what they instruct their membership to do is to pray about their authority, that they're going to get that kind of an answer. If they had that kind of confidence, they might be willing to do that. I don't know. I, I, I find the entire construction of this to be problematic in that, in that the way to measure the validity of uh, Mormon priesthood or Mormon spiritual experiences is to statistically compare it to other, other, uh, to other spiritual experiences. I, I, I don't see how that's particularly helpful. For instance, if I were to counsel someone pray to know whether or not this is true, I don't think it would be a, a, a logical answer to say, well, I, I can't do that because I haven't prayed to know whether or not the Quran is true. And my response is, well, okay, go ahead, fine, pray about whether or not the Quran is true, but, but the, the, that, that's not what I'm asking you to do. I mean, I, I don't think the comparison is necessary in order to be able to connect directly with God. And I think that's what Latter-day Saints are asking us to believe. I, I, I have not had the experience within the church where I'm supposed to go and, and tear down the spiritual experiences of people outside of the church or, or, or justify the priesthood by saying, well, you know, the priesthood is, is true because no Guatemalan Catholic mother is ever healed. I mean, nobody, nobody says that. Nobody's, nobody's thinking in those terms. I mean, I, 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 I'm trying to, when I bear my testimony, I'm bearing testimony of my experience. I am not trying to make allowances or make judgments for anybody else's, even within the church. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's the Joshua from the Old Testament. As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. This is my experience. This is who I am. And if you come back and say, well, so-and-so says that the, they, an angel told them to go to the Methodist church. My response is, well, then so-and-so should go to the Methodist church. That's, I mean, I, 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 I'm not in the business, and I don't even think the church really is in the business. Uh, maybe they used to be. I think that there were probably sermons earlier in the church's history 
that were far more combative to other faiths. I don't think you see that hardly at all anymore. Uh, uh, but uh, it, it's not a question of, you know, we're, we're, this church is true because the Catholics aren't so much as this church is true because we've had spiritual experiences telling us it's true. Well, it's also, I always, this is one of, this may be a bit of a tangent, but every time someone stands up in testimony meeting and says, I know the church is true, they're misquoting the Lord from the Doctrine and Covenants because there is no place in the Doctrine and Covenants or in any scripture where it says that this is the only true church. The phrase that's in the Doctrine and Covenants is that this is the only true and living church. And I take that to mean that there is truth. Their churches teach truth all over the place. I can go to a Catholic church, I can go to a Methodist church, and I can sit down and I can hear a sermon about Christ that teaches things that I that I fully accept 100% to be true. Uh, the issue is not necessarily truth alone. It's that living component. It's the living power of God and the living authority of God. And also that word living uh, also says to me that like all living things, the church has to learn and to grow uh, and and recognize that it's going to make mistakes along the way. That's what living things do. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily just stand up and say, I know the church is true and that all other churches are false. What I say is, I know that this is the true and living church that the Lord has designed to allow his ordinances and his power to spread to all of his children. I also know that uh, the Lord interacts with all of his children with, outside the boundaries of this church, and that he teaches truth to them in other churches and in other settings. He teaches truth to them in academic settings, he teaches truth to them in movies that they watch, and I mean, whatever else it is, that there is truth to be found throughout the world. Uh, but the, the, the thing that sets the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints apart is that we are the true and living vehicle to be able to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. And, and so... I, I, I just think framing it in those terms where it becomes necessary for me to denigrate someone else's experience or denigrate someone else's faith. I, I just don't think that's, I, I don't, I don't see the value in that. You, you sense though, I think that when we dive into the messiness of Mormonism and as time goes on in the world has more access to information, that everything that was once concrete in Mormonism, like here, we, we know this works and we know it works this way. Everything has to move into the arena of subjectiveness. And here's what I mean. Um, we, we have to come up with alternate explanations that have tons of allowances and which are neither provable nor disprovable when at one time we made extravagant claims. And I'll be specific here. We, we framed the priesthood in a certain way. Um, we certainly taught our members, at least, at least if I go back to when I joined as a 17-year-old, that the holy priesthood, that was real power. And that um, blessings given by those holding the holy priesthood had real power that was distinguishably different 
than the corrupt false priesthoods of other religious systems or the corrupt uh, apostate priesthoods of Catholicism. And what you said today is that if we were to have a Catholic priest do his blessing rituals on 100 people, and the Mormon elders did their blessing ritual on 100 people, there would be no distinguishable statistical difference. And I agree with that, by the way. I think that's the truth. Well, statistical difference. That, That there would be healings on both sides, that there would be miracles on both sides, that the number of miracles across any 100 people blessed by their religious tradition would essentially come out statistically the exact same as the Mormons doing their rituals. See, the problem with that, though, is that if you're talking about Benny Hinn kind of faith healing where, you know, somebody who's had their arm amputated, they get a blessing and their arm grows back. um, I... Nor nor when Mormon elders bless somebody with no arm. That doesn't come back either. But but that's what I'm saying. If if, if the the Mormons were to bless somebody and the arm doesn't come back. I'm saying a cancer unit. I'm saying let's let's not take any scam artists either. Let's take take people who are sincerely making an effort to use their religious rituals, which they believe in, to bless the lives of others. I still don't think there would be a statistical difference. You've participated in priesthood blessings. You've participated and understood how those work in the sense that the blessings that are given – uh, very often, almost always, uh, include things like we bless the doctors that will work with you, that they, their hands will be sure. We bless, you know, that your body will respond to this. And I mean, I mean that the, the extravagant claims aren't necessarily made in these blessings. And so, so I, I the, the, the thing that people don't recognize about priesthood blessings or or any of these kinds of experiences is that is that the Lord is not usually in the business of of um, parlor tricks of theatricality uh, and so for instance when when my daughter was injured uh, in her skiing accident I, I I gave her a priest of blessing that <laughs> was one of the most sacred experiences of my life. And, and I recognized the responsibility, and I, I felt like I would love to have laid hands on her head and said, I hereby undo everything that happened to you in this terrible accident. Get up and walk, and we're done. Let's go home. Uh, that was not the inspiration that came to me. But I did make her very specific promises. For instance, I promised her that she would walk again. And that was a huge if uh, the, the surgeon who performed the surgery told us after we went back, said, I, I fully expected you would be spending the rest of your life in a wheelchair. And she is not. She walks. She walks with the aid of crutches. She does not walk uh, un, unhindered the way she did prior to the accident. But, so the, so, but the priesthood and the experience with the priesthood uh, was a connection to God that allowed my daughter to recognize uh, the Lord's hand in this, allowed me to recognize the Lord's hand in it, and allowed me to be in tune enough to be able to know what promises the Lord was willing to make. Now, those promises are not theatrical, and an outsider can look at that and say, well, if you hadn't given her that blessing, she'd probably still be able to walk. It didn't make any difference one way or the other. And 
I look at that and go, I know what I felt giving the blessing, and I cannot demonstrate that to you. I cannot measure that statistically to you in any way that will be meaningful. The only way this can be meaningful to you is if you were to go directly to God and say, was this a valid exercise of priesthood? Was this, did this mean something? Was there a healing divine hand involved in what happened here? And, and, I, and I recognize that, that that's maddening to, to anybody outside looking out and looking in. And the reality is that is the way mortality has been designed in that there are plenty of opportunities for anybody to discount the spiritual experiences of anybody else. Uh, there, I, I don't think there will ever be uh, any kind of statistical analysis or any kind of scientific survey that will demonstrate the truth claims of any faith, including mine. I, I don't, I, and I think that's intentional. I don't think the Lord wants that to be the experience. We have had the experience prior to this life of being in his presence and knowing 100% exactly what his will is and exactly what you know, all of this kind of thing is. And we have chosen an experience where we are not going to have that and we are still going to see what it is that we're going to do when we don't have that kind of surety. And what we have to lean on in those times are the kinds of spiritual experiences that scoffers can scoff at all day long and say, well, that's, that's nonsense, and I can demonstrate that's nonsense, and I did a survey of everybody else in the hospital, and your healing is no more val valid than it. And this, you know, this Scientologist thinks they've been healed too. And my reaction is, okay, good for the Scientologist. I, 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 I can't speak to that. I can't judge that. The Lord does not want me to judge that. I, I think you're building a straw man. So I, let me be clear. I, I think miracles, regardless of whether they can be explained naturally, and again, what makes a miracle a miracle is that at, in our present understanding of information, it it isn't a nat there is no natural explanation. But that doesn't mean that later on new information doesn't come in and we can explain things naturally. So that said, I think miracles happen. I think miracles happen in Mormonism. I think your daughter walking is a demonstration of that. That said, I don't think those miracles occur in any way that is observably statistically significant in Mormonism over any other religious system that performs and has faith in rituals that bless the lives of others to get better as well. You're absolutely right. It doesn't. Uh, that does not in any way, at least in my mind, diminish uh any any Mormon claim? I don't think. Other than other than that, the Catholic Church, which we see as being in apostasy, having lost the keys, not having real priesthood, that its rituals have the same rate of miracles that happen with its members as the holy priesthood of God and the true and living church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But there's no way to quantify that. That's the point, is that there's no way to quantify that. Because, because you can't quantify my experience with my daughter as objectively as a miracle. There are plenty of explanations for what happened to her and for her healing process that don't require miraculous intervention. And I'm sure if you talk to her surgeon, the same one who said, I didn't think you'd ever walk again, 
if you asked him, I don't think he's a member of the church. Maybe he is. I don't know. I don't know him well enough, but I don't think he is. I don't think you asked him, well, is that because, is that because Jim Bennett gave her a blessing? His answer wouldn't be, he'd probably be kind. <laughs> he'd probably say, well, I hope so. Or I, but, but, but you can't measure that statistically one way or the other. I mean, you, you, you can't, you can't take an objective statistical measurement of miracles because miracles require subjective interpretation. I work with a guy who is obsessed with theories of human consciousness, and he always comes back to the idea of, of qualia. Are you familiar with the term qualia? I'm not. Uh, this, this is a term that's used in discussing consciousness to discuss what are essentially subjective experiences. For instance, um, when I say something is red, and I point it out to you, and you say, oh, yes, that's red, we both can agree that it's red, but red is a qualia that we cannot objectively right. define. define red. Describe red. You can't. Right, right. I don't know. For all I know, what you say is red is, is, appears to you in what appears to me as green. But since we both agree that it's red, there's just no way to verify that. Right. There's just no, there, no, unless, I, unless I step into your brain, I can't know what your redness looks like. Right. Uh, I mean, spiritual experiences and miracles are entirely the same way. Uh, I mean, there, there is no way to assess the validity of a spiritual experience. There is no way to objectively upset, with, with, with ridiculously rare exceptions. I mean, if someone were to go on television without an arm, and someone were to lay hands on them and an arm magically grows back, people would be very hard-pressed to say that wasn't a miracle. I think you'd probably find some who would try to find, and I think you'd find a great deal of people who would try to find a natural explanation, naturalistic explanation for it. But, but so when you keep saying statistically, we have no more miracles than the Catholics do, I, I, I just throw up my hands and say, there's no way to know that. I mean, I can't deny that, but I, but you can't confirm that. There is no possible way to be able to measure that statistically. And, and, and for and for an individual, an outsider to look at it and go, well, I went through the ward and this wasn't a miracle and that wasn't a miracle and the Catholics had more of a miracle and that seemed more like a miracle to me. All they're doing is is measuring their subjective interpretations of what they're willing to consider a miracle. In the absence of the kind of clear miracles, in the, in the absence of magic, uh, miracles require subjective interpretation, and there is no way to measure them statistically. So any statistical measure of a miracle used as evidence for or against the truth claims of the Mormons doesn't just just strikes me as as a, a really futile exercise. And, and, and I'm going to agree with you in that Mormonism thrives best when things are moved and walked back to a subjective realm. They were never moved out of the subjective realm. I mean, I mean, there may be people who have interpreted that way, but, but there's, no, there's no possible way it can be moved out of the subjective realm. There's no possible way somebody can objectively say, this is precisely what you can expect when you kneel down and pray to know if the Book of Mormon is true. Your answer will come at this time and at this moment in exactly these parameters. No one has ever done that. 
uh, I think there have been people who sort of tried to do that and failed. But the reality is uh, the things of the Spirit are only known by the Spirit, and, and everybody from the outside looking in looks at that and goes, well, then I, I can't measure that, I can't quantify it, so it, it must be nonsense. Right. Religion and faith is a subjective experience, right. Um, we're out of time today, and again, just want to say thank you. I, I know, I know, you know, there are times where you're getting louder, I'm getting louder. I just want you to know there's not a single hard feeling towards you. I, I get where... I, and I hope you realize there's not a single hard feeling toward yeah. you, and I hope you realize I how much I, 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 I really genuinely, thoroughly enjoy this. Yeah, no, I think it's fun, and I think... I think we both get to learn better where we stand and learn maybe where our positions aren't as strong. And, and, and I've had to make adjustments to this too. And so I'm hoping that as we sit down again, that we can talk about that. But this will essentially wrap up the issues that we've discussed. And then we'll just kind of come back one more time for some reflection. Um, but Jim Bennett, thank you so much for being on Mormon Discussion today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day. You too. Let's go.